remember thinking to myself, God, you would be perfectly just to send me to hell eternally. I didn't want to go to hell, but I knew that I deserved to go there. In the midst of my despair, I think this is a work of God's grace, but it's also that foundation. In the midst of my despair, I never once considered looking anywhere else but to Christ for my salvation. I questioned whether I could be forgiven. I questioned whether I could ever be truly clean. But I had no doubt that if such things were to be had, they could only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, later on, as I faced many of the intellectual challenges of of the Christian faith, I, I certainly studied other religions and studied our own faith and tried to understand, is there a good foundation for my belief? But I didn't do that when I was desperately looking to get out of the water, so to speak, and not be drowned. I just looked to Christ. I pleaded with Jesus to save me. And I did this repeatedly over the course of several weeks. And after a few weeks, I began to have some assurance as I was reading the Bible that Jesus had forgiven my sins and that he had cleansed me. And I would say at that time that the love of Christ living in me took hold of me in a whole new way. I don't know exactly if that was the point of my conversion or earlier, I don't know. But that was certainly a powerful time in my life. I began to think if God could love me at my worst, I was determined to learn as much as I could about that God. Now, I did many things during that time. I I hung out with friends who wanted to know Jesus Christ. I I went to Bible studies uh, throughout the week, continued to go to church and Sunday school. I went to Christian concerts. Amy Grant and Leon Patillo was the first concert I ever went to. Um... But in addition to trying to regularly pray, I took on two habits that have stuck with me the rest of my life. The first was a friend of me bought a Bible. I should have brought it out here today. It's on my shelf. Uh, bought me an uh, NIV study. It was like an NIV Thompson Chain Reference Study Bible. My kids laugh at it because I've got all these like really immature comments and all the sides and stuff like that. Um, but... He bought me that Bible, and I began to read the Bible every day. And that stuck with me my entire life. I'm not saying I haven't missed times reading the Bible, but that habit has stuck with me. Uh, At the same time, very shortly after that, I borrowed, slash took, slash stole, a hymnal from my church. Nobody noticed. Um, and I would get that hymn book, it was green, and I would get it, and I would just start reading through the hymns. If I happened to know the tune, I would try to sing it very softly, because I didn't want to disturb anybody else. But I would, I would you know, try to sing. I knew that my newfound love of Christ needed a tangible expression. And instinctively, no one taught me this. I mean, they did, but I didn't know it. 
Instinctively, I knew that the word and the song were both to be the expression of my Christian faith. I didn't read the Bible for some academic interest. If I've developed an academic interest in the Bible, it is only because of the multitude of ways in which people have misunderstood the Bible that has forced me to try to get an accurate understanding of it so that I could, we could have as healthy of a view of God as we could. But it wasn't just, I didn't read it for academic purposes. I read my Bible because, even though I didn't put it in these terms at that time, I wanted the Word of Christ to dwell in me richly. And the same thing occurred with my hymnal. I certainly was not trying to develop my skill of singing. I learned very quickly that it was not a skill that I had. Although, a person I admire very much, Lacey Twing, says that I have improved. So there's hope for even the worst of you guys. So... I wanted to learn about Jesus from the people who wrote those hymns. I wanted to piggyback off of the skill, the poetic skill of others, and somehow give expression to my heart as they put it into such better writing than I could ever do. I learned as I read those hymns that the the thoughts and the feelings and the struggles of the hymn writers were often my own. And they all seemed to direct my heart to Jesus. Now we are in Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. And they are at the conclusion. If you look in your Bibles, most of them have it roped off from like verse 1 all the way down to verse 17. So you can see that we are really at the tail end of Paul's discussion at the, throughout Colossians 3. And in those verses, Paul gave us the command to put off evil and to put on good. So therefore, we know that it is our job, our duty as Christians every day of our lives. Sometimes we don't do so well at this. Sometimes we do better. But we are constantly called to actively strive to put off sin and to put on Christ. But in those verses last week, I hope you saw, if you were here in the, in the sermon, in those verses... Paul just like weaves like a fabric through the entirety of them the importance of actually living out those duties in Christ. Apart from Christ, you could do nothing. Period. Paul has been telling us in the book of Colossians that in Christ and through Christ and to Christ are all things. That's what he cares about. He wants Christ to be everything to his people. And I would tell you that if you are not running to Christ in the struggle against sin, then you're not doing it what Paul wants you to do. If you're not running to Christ to somehow take on the character of Christ, you're not doing what Paul wants you to do. He wants you to run to Christ every moment. Now just as way of just explanation, many of you probably already know this, but It took me a long time to figure this out. The word Christ is actually a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. The same word, just different translations. One's in Hebrew, one's in Greek. So in the Old Testament, God gave promises of a Redeemer, of a Messiah to come, and Jesus is that Redeemer. 
So we just say Jesus Christ, but really it's Jesus who is the Christ. Jesus who is the Messiah. He is the one on whom every hope that you have is pinned. So now we're ready for Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Memorize that verse. You don't even have to memorize the whole verse. Just memorize that verse. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You should run that over and over and over again in your mind. The Greek actually is even more emphatic. It says, the Word of Christ, may it dwell in you richly. The Word of Christ, may it dwell in you richly. In the Greek, there's several words that are translated as word, One is Rima, one is Logos. This is the only place in Scripture that uses the Logos of Christ. Very interesting. In Romans 10, 17, it comes close. I'll read that to you. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That's the other place where it's said. It just uses that word Rima rather than Logos. I don't think there's a distinction in those two words in this context. Other places there may be. But when we think about the Word of Christ, I want you to understand that you can think about that narrowly and you can think about it broadly. Okay, Narrowly, it is the essence of the Gospel. It is things like, um, you're forgiven by Christ's blood. Uh, you're imputed the righteousness of Christ through faith. You, you, you trust in Jesus, He saves you. Just those basic you know, things that we talk about, the heart of the gospel. That's what it could be talking about when he talks about the word of Christ. But it is also uh, helpful to see this word of Christ as referring to all of Scripture. In Luke 24, I'll read this to you. Jesus is talking uh, to some of his disciples after his resurrection. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Word of Christ is narrowly the Gospel, but it's broadly every passage of Scripture, including the entire Old Testament. 
Every passage in some way is designed by God to expand your understanding of Christ. So we should avoid two extremes. As we preach and as we teach and as you read the Bible, you shouldn't turn every passage of Scripture into a narrow center of the gospel message. It happens sometimes. You know, it just seems like you just get the same thing over and over. But that flattens the Scripture, and it's not helpful. But also, we should avoid contenting ourselves with exegeting a passage without any attempt to see how it relates to Christ. So if you read a passage and it doesn't relate to Christ right on the surface, you just like, I don't know what that means. You should always be struggling to see how might this relate to Christ. If you don't do that, you're not reading the Scripture the way God intends you to read it. And then what is more, in this passage, Paul doesn't want you to just learn about Christ. He doesn't want you to have like a resume of which you can like chart, tick off, oh, I know this about Christ, I know this about Christ, I know this about Christ. He wants Christ to dwell inside of him. And he wants the things that he's learning about Christ to become a part of him, to dwell in him. That's what he wants. If you learn that Jesus is a sacrificial lamb, you must take that truth into your heart and you must rely upon his death every day of your life to remove God's wrath from you. It's a living, breathing thing. If you learn that Jesus is your great high priest, then even though you, you think about your own approach of God as being very pitiful and, and not as strong as you want it to be, you are trusting that your high priest, who loves you tenderly, is taking your pitiful attempts at worship and he's lifting them up and purifying them and making, lifting them up to the Father in such a way that the Father is pleased with them. If you learn that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, you must in some way say, Lord, how can I bow my heart to you every day? How is it that you want me to die to myself? I could go on. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, quoting. That is, let it be your most familiar friend. We know the people who live in our home. But we don't really know other people. Most of you might think that you do know me, but you, you don't. Robin knows me. When someone asked George Whitfield, this is still Spurgeon quoting, what do you think of Mr. So-and-so's character? He answered, I cannot say. For I've never lived with him. Wow, what a great answer if somebody wants you to gossip, right? I don't know. I don't, I'm not living with him. Ah, oh, that is the true test. Can't you just hear Spurgeon? It is living with people that lets you know what they are. In a like manner, you, if you live with the word of Christ, especially if you will let it dwell in you and abide with you as a constant friend, you will get to know it better, and the better you know it, the more you will love it. 
What a great quote. The passage doesn't just say, take Christ and make him dwell in you. The command is in the passive, which is also beautiful. Like you have to try to do something to want the word of God to be in you, and yet you're entirely dependent on Christ to just come in. You just receive him. Let the word of Christ live in you. This is a work, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are involved in your salvation. Christ largely is a part of meriting and earning and working your salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who actually takes that salvation and applies it to your heart. So even though this passage is primarily about Christ, we do want to uh, make sure that you understand that it is only as the Spirit of God is working in your heart will you ever have the Word of God dwelling in you. So you come to God with your hands open. You come saying, Holy Spirit, teach me today every time you approach the Word of God. Wanting to be fed. And even though in some sense we should be satisfied with the crumbs, we should always be pleading for more. I love that hymn that says, oh, the, the, the showers of mercy are dropping, but I want the floodgates to come down. I want to I feed upon you more. That should be our prayer. This should be our passion, both as individuals and as a church body. Really want, when people come into this church, to not just see from the pulpit, but from all of you, that we are consumed with Christ. Now Paul says that we do this by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And when these two words are placed together, they're like bookends. So think of teaching as the positive instruction about the truth, and think about admonishing as having to correct wrong ideas about the gospel. And Paul says that we're doing this all the time with one another. Both are necessary. Paul has actually, in the book of Colossians, he has corrected them. He's admonished them on some faults, but he's also positively taught them about the gospel of Christ. And even though Paul is very much, um, I mean, he's in, even in this letter giving authoritative teaching, which is what we would consider like preaching from the pulpit, like a, a form of authoritative teaching, even though that he's very much for that, in this particular psalm, in this passage, he says that you should teach yourselves. In other words, teach one another. That's the translation. You are to build each other up in Christ. You are to help each other understand the gospel. This should be something that's happening within the church. And one way... One way, it could be other ways, but one way in which Paul envisions this happening is through singing. He says, singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They are the means, or one means, by which the church is to teach and admonish one another. You ever think about that as you sing the psalms or the hymns, the spiritual songs, that you're actually speaking truth to one another? So that 
the word of Christ would dwell in one another. Now, literally, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. But what does he mean by these three terms? Many assume that by psalms, he means the Old Testament book of psalms. Hymns, the other Trinity hymnal, I'm sure he's thinking about that in 45 A.D. No, but hymns. And then spiritual songs. He's obviously referring to the contemporary Christian worship music. But I'm going to tell you that it is better to understand that all three of those words refer to the Old Testament book of Psalms. What we have and what we consider to be our Psalter. The titles in the book of Psalms often use, they'll actually say, this is a psalm, P-S-A-L-M. 67 of them, by the way, have that in the title. Six of them have the word hymn. They say, this is a hymn. And 35 of them have in the title, this is a song. And in Psalm 76... All three words are used in one song. Isn't that interesting? doesn't come out quite as simple in the, in the uh, English. The ESV says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Uh, that's psalm. Or a, a song, uh, hymn, excuse me, hymn. A psalm of Asaph, a song. So it uses all three just for that one Psalm. And if you look at the Greek, the words match up identically. The, the Greek words and the, and the uh, Engli- our English words, and, and they all match up. So Paul is using three words that would have been known by the early church to have been used in their, their Greek Old Testament. When I first came to be convinced that all three of these words referred to the Old Testament Psalms, it was shocking to me. Until this time, I had not really given much thought to the Psalms. We were taught, oh, read the Psalms as prayers, but the actual singing the Psalms, that was like, no, we didn't do that. Occasionally, a writer might take a couple verses out, pluck it out, and then write a song, like a new song. But to actually sing the Psalms? Like, what are you even talking about? It's like my whole thinking on singing began to shake. I was like, what in the world? Now, I've never become convinced, there are some small, very small sects that think that the only thing that the church should sing are the Psalms. Never been convinced of that. I'm not going to argue that today. But this verse... And along with Ephesians 5.19, there's another place that does, Paul does the same thing. It makes it explicit that to not sing psalms is to neglect what the God wants. He wants you to sing psalms. G.K. Beale wrote it this way. Verse 16 places squarely on the shoulders of each Christian 
the responsibility to teach and admonish one another through psalm-based material and to sing psalm-like hymns to God. Now, my foundation had taught me the importance of singing and singing truth, but it did not give me the foundation of singing this. So this was something that came to me late in life. And he wanted me to do this as a means particularly of letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly. Now this is, the, this is what, if you really get this, the Old Testament Psalms are now to be viewed to be the very word of Christ. And you don't really understand a psalm until you understand it through the lens of Christ. I'm telling you, I had no idea this. I was sitting in seminary class and I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? I knew that there were a few messianic psalms that kind of had some prophecies about Christ in them. But I had two professors in seminary that began every class with a devotional in one of these psalms. We'd pull this out. They would just open it up. They would give you some of the historical context of when it was originally written, kind of help you understand it, and then show you how it related to Christ, and then we would sing it. Now, since that time, one of those professors, Dr. Belcher, has written two books. And I don't normally do this, but I don't know anywhere else to tell you to go. He does it better than anywhere else I've seen. He's got a book called The Messiah and the Psalms. And he goes through, I don't know, six, eight, ten psalms, and he just explains to you how to look at that psalm and see Christ in it. Really good. And he also has written The Fulfillment of the Promises of God, which I think these two books generally help us to better understand our Old Testament so that we can make good use of them. I'd encourage that for anybody. He does a great job on both of those. He doesn't pay me to say that to you anyway. Um, But at the same time I was learning the tremendous benefit of singing psalms, I was also beginning to see how difficult it was to try to help God's people benefit from the Psalms. The Psalms are written in Hebrew. And you should know this by anyone who writes a song in English. They have a certain rhyme, a meter, things going on to it. And then you translate it. It's really hard to translate it. So there's a, that's a challenge in and of itself. And if you look at your Psalter, some of those songs are long. Try to figure that one out. How do you just do a portion of it, or how do you do all of it? And you know, it's, it gets crazy. Also, the Psalms, if you read through the Psalms at all, they contain a lot of history. And if you don't know your Old Testament, you're like, what in the world is this talking about? Which I think is very purposeful. I think God wants to, as you're trying to sing the Psalms, drive you back to understand the history of the Old Testament so that you'll better understand Christ. But it takes time, it takes effort, it's not easy applying it to where you are today. It's just a whole lot easier to just sing whatever hymns or whatever songs you're singing. And I understand if pastors just like, hey, let's I can't fight that battle today. It's hard. I am very, very thankful for the hymns. Many of which these hymns are based on psalms. 
Not all of them, but many of them are. But I would challenge all of us. This is a, this is a real challenge. Steal a copy of this. Take it home. Start reading it. Start trying to even sing it. Even if you don't know the tune. I'm not trying to torture you. We don't have any psalms in the worship today. But we do often. And I know people are, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Can't they do any better than this? Well, we might be able to do better. Somebody wants to really gifted in poetry and, and understanding of the Word of God and wants to rewrite a Psalter for us, go for it. But it better be quality. It's hard. I'm thankful for whoever did this. I don't know who did it. but If you understand the, the Psalter, the Psalter is the Old Testament hymn book. This was their hymn book. It was a collection of songs that the God's people throughout the ages sung. That's what it was. They were written by people pouring out their hearts to God, but they were doing it as inspired writers, giving you the truth of the text of Scripture. What better place to give expression to your own heart struggles than go back to the Psalms and see their heart struggles and use them to better articulate your own heart? Now, this gets better, in my opinion. Not only does God want us to sing the psalms, not only are they beneficial to us in many ways, but they help you to see Christ. And you know what helped me more than anything else to see this? I believe that Jesus Christ sang every one of the 150 psalms. Now you think about that. He didn't use this one. He didn't sing the Trinity Psalter. But he sang these psalms. Now, I hear people tell me all the time, Mike, you want to go to the promised land? You want to walk where Jesus walked? You want to feel the closeness of walking the same footsteps as Christ? I say, yeah, that'd be great. That's fine. I get to sing the very songs that Christ sang. Think about that. And you know, sometimes you get to a a psalm and it says things like, Oh, I praise you with my whole heart. And you're like, oh, I know that I'm praising God with my whole heart today. Guess who sang the psalm and did it with his whole heart? Christ did. And I'm so thankful for that because then I know that he's my high priest. In my pitiful attempt to sing the same song, he says, oh, thank you. You're doing that in Christ, and I'm taking this pitiful worship of me, and I'm lifting it up to the Father, and he's pleased with it because it's done in me. And if you want to doubt whether Jesus sang the Psalms, it's explicit. He doesn't, we don't have proof that he did every one of the 150 Psalms. I think it's likely. But we have explicit proof in Matthew... At the uh, Matthew 26, at the Passover, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's obvious that during the Passover meal, they would sing these psalms called Hallel Psalms that were from 113 to 118. And he sang one of those psalms and then went out.
the Psalms are there, among other reasons, to help you bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Anyone here struggle to understand the Old Testament? Now, my appreciation of the Psalter has helped me better appreciate hymns and even spiritual songs of the modern form as well. You see, what's going on, as you get to the New Testament, there are some things in the, in the New Testament that are like, oh my goodness, how do we figure that out? I.e., things like the Trinity. The early church wrestled for 300 years trying to figure out how the Trinity fit together. Really, some ways, 400 years, 500 years. They're working that through. They didn't get it perfect. We'll never get it perfect until we see them in glory. But they gave us some good things. And you know what? The hymns of those early generations are a lot about the Trinity. Wonderful. You get to the Reformation, and the church is, is better trying to articulate and understand justification by faith alone. Guess what? The hymns that are written during that period are full of helping you understand justification by faith alone. There may be new things in our modern world. I'm not opposed to, to new hymns being written because we're always learning better how to articulate the gospel of which we believe. But I think we should use our Psalter as a guide. And what do I mean by that? Now, I'm just going to give you one example. I love many of the, mo well, I can't say modern anymore. When I was 25 years old, I loved the modern uh, Christian music, right? I mean, in, in choruses and worship music. It gets harder and harder the older I get. I get stuck back in that, that era, the 80s. Not a good thing. But one thing I've never liked is repetition. Sing the same thing over and over and over again. That's distasteful to me. But I'm going to tell you, you've never heard me criticize a repetitive song. Maybe in private, sometimes I'll tell you my tastes. But I don't do that from the pulpit. I'm not doing it now. Do you know why? Because of Psalm 136. You know what Psalm 136 does? It says, The steadfast love endures forever 26 times. That's repetition. Do you think God wants you to know the steadfast love of the Lord? Once you get stuck on that a little bit? Okay, so, so I can't do that. At the same time, if you make every one of your songs... The steadfast love of the Lord is never-ending, and that's all you ever say. you got a problem, don't you? How many of the 150 psalms repeat the same line 26 times? One. So doesn't that help you as a guide? You want to have rich depth of theology, understanding of all of Scripture, what's going on, how God moved in ages past. You want to put that into your song but you, it's okay at times to just say the conclusion over and over and over again. Just don't make that all of your worship. Anybody here familiar with Isaac Watts? Watts, he got criticized in his day, because in that day, almost everybody sang the Psalms. 
But he wanted to take the Psalms and he wanted to explicitly put Christ into them. Just so it was easier for people to understand. In your hymn book, your Trinity, there are 34 hymns written by Isaac Watts. They're not all of Psalms, but most of them are. And they show you how you take the Psalm and then relate it to Christ. Go home. Steal one of these. We'll buy more. Steal one. Go home. Let's look up the Isaac Watts hymns. Read them. And then say, oh, it's based on this psalm. Then go and read your psalm and try to put those together and piece together what Isaac Watts was thinking. This is how you teach and admonish one another. A word on tunes. It is obvious that the psalms had tunes. And they were different tunes. For whatever reason, in the, in the perfect providence of God, we do not know what those tunes were. That just tells me God's okay with different tunes. <laughs> Many of the hymns that you sing in the, in the hymn book were not the original tune that it was sung to. Changed over time. And I want to tell you that there is obviously within the church, every one of you has your own personal taste of what the tune should be like. I know this because sometimes you come to me and say, oh, I really love that one. And then the same week, I'll have people say, what in the world were you singing that one for? Can you not do better than that? So what do I think? I think we should be incredibly patient with one another. And as God provides giftedness, there are times when we've had people up here playing guitars. We've had choruses. We have more modern things. I'm okay with that. Seems like recently we've relied mainly on Ken, and that's okay. Ken does a great job. Thank you. He knows these and helps us to sing those. But it's not the tune. If it was, God would have ordained it. Right? God cares about the tune. The tune helps us to sing together. All the same song, that's good. That's, you know, we're not singing different things. But God is not first and foremost concerned about our vocal sound. I'm not saying we should not try to be vocally good. We should. Even Lacey says, I've improved. But just as God said, it is not his size or his strength that I care about. I care about the heart. God cares what comes out of you as you sing. God loves to hear you sing, Rebecca. He doesn't just love to hear Ken sing. He loves to hear all his people sing, even those who can't carry a tune very well. And I want to tell you that not only does it please God, but it infuriates Satan. You want to make Satan angry? Sing. I need to move on. Much more could be said. We are to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And very briefly, I think the Old Testament was filled with, uh, the Psalms were filled with thankfulness. There's only one Psalm, Psalm 88, that ends in darkness. Um, so that, like they all start out, or many of them start out with like, oh, 
woe is me, it's tough. And they lead you to thankfulness, which is, I think, another good thing. But I think that we in the New Testament have Christ here. So we have even more reason to give thanks than even the Old Testament saints. In verse 17, I think it connects with this. Whatever you do, in word or deed, so like if you're singing, do it this way. If you're actually going out and working, do it this way. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the conclusion of his passage. It's not just at the end of your prayers, say, in Jesus' name. It is in everything you are saying, I need Christ today. Even this past week, I remember something just bothering me internally, um, and I was struggling with it. And I was like, Lord, how do I get past this? And I was thinking about, I'm just doing this. And I thought, no, you're in me. Your spirit lives in me. Help me to overcome the struggle that I'm having. Now, sometimes it's quick and nice. but Sometimes it's like it seems like it gets worse. But I think meditating on that fact is what God wants us to do. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. And so what I'm going to do, I've given you a lot of broad stuff. Now, as we close this sermon and move to communion, I'm going to narrow it down. My guess is, every one of you are saying, first, I'm not sure I believe all that. Secondly, if I believe it, I don't know if I can do it. Thirdly, you know, wow, this is overwhelming. And so what, guess what you have to do? You have to finish with Christ. I often confess to God that my worship is pitiful. It is. I regularly go through stretches throughout the day, sometimes even more than a day, without even thinking much about Christ. Just telling you guys as your pastor, this happens to me too. I can go through and sing a hymn and then went, what, what was that hymn about? Right? See, none of us lives to the standard. Don't walk away from here and make this huge standard of, oh, i got to do all this perfectly, and if I don't do it perfectly, Christ is going to hate me, and I'm just going to... That's not Christianity. He loves you right where you are. He's helping you. He's training you. He's building you up. And I hope this sermon in some way does that. But you have to rely on Christ right where you are. Rest in the fact of your imperfect worship today that God loves it. Finish all of your thoughts with just the fact that God loves me in Christ. Be thankful that Jesus worshiped perfectly so that it's, that burden is not on you. And also be thankful that one day we will all worship perfectly in glory. Amen.